In the last episode of Inside the Crime, we followed some of the initial leads pursued by those on the hunt for Charles Self's killer. There was one person of interest that Charles had had back to the house a few nights prior. So I did spot the person in Rice's eventually. I remember <laughs> my hands were shaking when I went up to, to ring the guards to say that he was in the bar. But he was eliminated. After those early lines of inquiry faded away, up to 1,500 gay men were pulled in for questioning. Many felt they were treated like potential suspects because of their sexuality. Aside from that, gay sex was still illegal in 1982, and they feared there was something far more troubling at play. Because of the speed of the investigation and the narrow focus on just a specific group of gay and bisexual men, I felt the police were building up a dossier of gay men. In this episode of Inside the Crime, we're going to reveal even more shocking clues from Charles's case as we continue to pull at the loose ends left behind. I had been assured the fingerprints would be destroyed. We'll also look at how the then underground gay community, silenced by decades of oppression and aggression, finally found its voice and took to the streets. Charles was the first gay man to be murdered in 1982, but he wouldn't be the last. They say two people walking through the park found him at 1.30 this morning near the bandstand, not far from the main road. He was suffering from serious head injuries and died before he reached hospital. He went in the front door there, mm-hmm. and then the stairs went up there, and then there's a doorway into the main living room. Charles Self's friend, Bill Maher, is drawing a sketch of the layout of the muse for us. And this was the kitchen. We've gone through it over and over again. There's two windows here. We want to be completely clear as to what it looked like in 1982, both inside and out. The devil is always in the detail. This was even narrower, to be honest. It was quite a narrow kitchen. Then when you went up the stairs... Bill's drawings are good. A few wobbly lines here and there, but they're good, accurate. He could have been a designer himself. You had a small landing along there. Forty years ago, the investigation team was convinced that the mystery man in the taxi murdered Charles. According to retired detective Alan Bailey, the theory back then was that whomever he brought home that night was a rent boy or a roller pretending to be gay. At the outset, the belief was that Charles Self had picked up a rent by and at the Tyvesonburg he had brought him back to the apartment and the man had killed Charles, robbed him and ran away. So that was what the Gardaí at the time believed and what they were investigating. And to look at it, it would appear that whoever killed Charles may have come in the front door, killed him and couldn't get back out the front door because of the way Charles' body was slumped at the end of the stairs. And then if, to look to all intended purpose, whoever had killed Charles had exited through the window, the kitchen window. The kitchen was a small room off the, off the room where the murder occurred. There's a, a counter worktop and to the pier, there's a person, the culprit got up on that, climbed out through the window into the courtyard outside. Believe it or not, but Charles's kitchen window would prove to be one of the most contentious pieces of evidence in this whole case. Looking at the archive photos of the muse, this window was small. A stray black cat 
that Charles, ironically named Blondie after his favourite band, could barely squeeze through it. Bill lived in the Muse for six months, so I asked him if Charles's killer would have been able to get in or out that window. Totally impossible. It's only a tiny little window that you opened up, a little, what do you call them, a fan window or, or whatever. Yeah. And there was a cooker in front of it. So, um, no, absolutely. Uh, preposterous that anybody would even come up with that theory. There was also a flower box on the windowsill and that hadn't been disturbed and you would assume if somebody had scrambled out that they window. Couldn't, they, they, they couldn't do it. Just couldn't do it. Physically impossible for anybody to get through. And just so we're clear, were there other windows, doors, entry exit points? That there's no other, there's only one door in and out of the building. And the other windows, I showed you a photograph, it's similar to the one in the kitchen. So if somebody had killed Charles and left, the only obvious, or maybe the only exit would have been through the front door? The door they came in, yeah. We're not convinced that Charles was killed by a rent boy or a roller masquerading as one. He wasn't known to bring them home. He was careful about bringing anyone home. Also, the mystery man in the taxi was said to be in his mid-twenties. Rent boys were usually much younger. Ruby and Kitty were both 19. And again, nothing was taken. The place had been ransacked and certainly looked like it had been robbed, but nothing was taken. We're not ruling these theories out, by the way, but we think it's important to explore others. The obvious one isn't always the right one. An open mind is the best investigative tool. As it turns out, Charles's neighbour, a 70-year-old woman called Mary Liddell, provided the guards with some valuable information. She lived in a muse just across the courtyard. She was awakened at some stage, three or four o'clock in the morning, by the sound of something being dragged across the courtyard. And what it was was a, um, a, a, a stone seat that was outside the house and just being pulled across to put against the back wall of the courtyard to facilitate climbing over. OK. Can you remember where that back wall led to? Into the garden of the house that the muse, muse were built in. OK. Yeah. OK. Um, when you visited the scene, was that stone chair seat still there? No, no, no. Okay. And I just wonder, and I don't know if this came up in the original investigation files, would that have been easily moved? No. It, it does, it does what woke Mary was the dragging across. You you find it difficult to carry, you know. And can you give us an idea of how far it would have been dragged from where it lay to where it was found? Where it was found, it, it, a number of yards. Just looking back, she also describes seeing a male figure scaling the scaling the wall, yeah. and and also um, a female voice asking the question, "Would you mind?" Do you remember that? Yeah, that, that and whether they were connected or whether it was the same incident, was it somebody out in the lane? Where, you know what I mean? Not 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 involved in this thing. One of the suggestions was, was there been a, a courting couple in the lane with the rear, for instance. You know, mm. would it have been somebody in the garden? of the house that they dropped in, your man dropped in. You know, all these, was somebody in the house shouting at the window. So all those scenarios were visited. 
And, and I suppose just looking at it now, 40 years on, um, it struck me as unusual that there would have been a woman in that garden as that person oh, that, fell yeah, down yeah, in the middle of, yeah, again, yeah. a bitter... But bitter again, it was Mary's recollection, so you have to run with it. Of course. You know. And was she considered a reliable witness? Oh, she was, yeah. Oh, she was certainly at the time. Now, back in 1982, the guards investigating Charles's murder were convinced that this man, who Mary Liddell saw scaling the back wall of the courtyard, was the mystery man in the taxi, making his escape after killing the popular set designer. But what if they were only half right? What if they were right on it being the mystery man in the taxi, but wrong on his reason for leaving in such a way? What if he had witnessed a murder and was maybe running for his own life? Perhaps he ran out the front door after the actual killer started attacking Charles but couldn't get out the gate, which wasn't an easy task, as Bill remembers well. There'd been heavy snow that week and it, it used to swell up in the wintertime and get stuck, so there was a knack to open it, you know. And that's happened every winter, you know. So, unable to open the gate into the laneway, maybe the mystery man in the taxi dragged that large stone bench to the back wall. The courtyard was enclosed by two walls. Both were about nine foot high, so not easily jumped. The most obvious escape route was the front wall, into the laneway. But the stone bench weighed a ton and was closer to the back wall, so it made sense to drag it there. That wall led into a neighbour's garden. Mary Liddell figured it was about three or four o'clock in the morning when she saw what she saw. We know this mystery man in the taxi arrived back to the mews with Charles at 12.40am. According to Bertie Tyrer, the second mystery man woke him up sometime between two and half past two. Again, Bertie didn't live there. He was a colleague of Charles's, but was only staying in the mews because he couldn't get back to his own place due to the snow. As we discovered in an earlier episode, the description of this man didn't match that of the mystery man in the taxi. The destroying and the description of the person's voice doesn't match with the person that came home in the taxi. Bertie's man had dark, curly hair and spoke with a West Brit accent. The mystery man in the taxi had longish, brushed-back fair hair. Like all good neighbours, and some bad ones too, Mrs Liddell kept a close eye on all comings and goings in and around Ansley Mews. And during my chat with Alan... I asked him about another aspect of her statement. She described also a man earlier that day in the afternoon yeah, yeah. in the laneway. You might tell us about her recollection of that. It's a man that she thought was acting suspiciously in the, in the laneway earlier that day. Okay. But it, it could have been a random stranger in the laneway. You know, or was it somebody sussing out? You don't know. He was never, never located anywhere. Yeah, because she did have a very detailed description of this person yeah. from what he was wearing to what he looked like, yeah. height and whatnot. Yeah. She described him as staring at this gate that led into the courtyard for about five minutes. Mm. And that was something that the original investigation team did follow up on. Or did it follow up? And, and was it somebody who had visited previously, you know, who lived in... I don't think he was ever identified. Mary Liddell noticed this man acting suspiciously as she sat in her study. She said he was standing in the laneway opposite the large gates leading into the courtyard. The gates were closed and locked. They always were. He stayed there for a few minutes before walking back down the laneway onto Brighton Avenue. This was on the Wednesday afternoon 
Around the same time, Charles was enjoying a few glasses of black bush in the Bailey with his friend Bill. Mrs. Liddell gave a good description of this man. His outfit stood out. He was wearing dark pants and a stylish tweed jacket. He was clean-shaven, of medium height, with brown hair. As Alan mentioned a few moments ago, this man has also never been identified. So far, there's been a lot of talk about mystery men. But what if Charles knew his killer? That could explain the level of violence meted out. Total overkill, as Alan Bailey put it. 14 stab wounds, remember, all from the front. There were no defensive wounds, suggesting he may have been taken by surprise. Or perhaps his guard was down because his attacker was known to him. The knife used to stab Charles to death had an 8-inch blade. I asked Alan about it. I'm aware that it was a weapon of opportunity in that he didn't bring it to the scene with him, to something that was available at the scene. So a weapon of opportunity yeah. is something that is within reach. A deadly weapon yeah. could be considered a kitchen knife. A kitchen knife, yeah. And it's, it's there. You're not bringing it to commit a crime. This weapon of opportunity belonged to Charles. It was his own stainless steel kitchen knife, which he had bought from Habitat, Ireland's first ever lifestyle store. It was found on the floor in the middle of the mess in the living room. Forensic evidence features in most cases these days, but the science is far more advanced now than it was 40 years ago. Aside from revealing what was used to kill Charles, the knife didn't hold anything else of evidential value. On the forensics front, the detectives held out hope of finding a match for that unidentified fingerprint we spoke about in the last episode. Remember, it was found on a drainpipe outside the kitchen window. It was the only one they couldn't account for. Could it be the mark of Charles's killer? There was also that bloody shoe print. The guards didn't know who it belonged to, but one thing was certain. It wasn't Charles's. He used to love buying designer shoes in the Brown Thomas sale. Gucci and Prada were his go-tos. He had a small foot for a man and would easily slip into a size 3 or 4. Whoever stepped in the pool of blood was a 7 or 8. And lo and behold, yet another clue began gathering dust on the evidence board. As the weeks and months rolled by, the big snow melted away. Spring was in the air and the country started to warm up. But as the clocks sprang forward, the murder squad's leads ran cold and tensions between them and the gay community reached boiling point. More and more men started coming forward with complaints of Garda harassment. Tony Walsh, a prominent gay activist, was disturbed by what he was hearing. Many of my friends that I spoke to at the time and since the investigation have have described a range of reaction behaviour from the Gardaí as they tried to process the Charles of murder investigation. In some cases, they were treated with hospitality and good manners and went about their business. In other cases, some people were roughly treated. They were harassed into providing extra names. In another case, somebody was harassed and pressurised into divulging the contents of their filofax, which would have been akin to giving over the contents of your, your WhatsApp messages today. 
I mean, your file of access, your list of contacts, names and phone numbers and addresses. I was hearing increasing reports of people's civil liberties being trampled, where people's nervousness in dealing with the police was either consciously or unconsciously exploited to advance the investigation. And that meant that actually police pushed the envelope a little bit in their behavior with people. For example, uh, taking fingerprints and mugshots. And if you're not an actual suspect, I can't see why, you know, you're going down to actually have an investigation that um, you need to offer up that level of identity. Given, I suppose, Tony, the flawed law that was in place at the time, but it was the law of the land. And as you say, you know, gay people were seen as criminals by Gardaí and and wider society because of that legislation. So there was obviously that tension between the guards before a hand was laid on Charles Self. But how would you have described relations between the Gardaí and the gay community after he was murdered in light of the way that they handled the investigation? I think there was a measure of institutional homophobia in the Gardaí in the same way there was across all of mainstream society. The Gardaí, after all, are merely the servants of the state and the state was institutionally homophobic. (laughs) So we need to start with that premise and that colours everything. That colours all, every type of engagement by civil society in statutory Ireland um, in its relations with the LGBT community. That is a premise that we actually have to understand and take on, on, on board. Now, saying that, there are also attitudes varied from one station to another, like Pier Street covered Bobby now known as Temple Bar. And I had some very good relations with several senior police in Pier Street because I had to deal with them on a regular basis. But side by side with that, there were notorious reports from uh, Ras Mines and Cabra Garda station. And we had activist friends who went about their business to uh, monitor and document the behaviour of the Gardaí as they hoovered up information and dragged people down to police stations all to process the Charles murder investigation. As Tony alluded to there, relations and feelings towards gay people varied from station to station and guard to guard. Charles's friend and fellow RT set designer Alan Farkerson was among those interviewed by detectives from the investigation team. Yes, I got a phone call and was asked to come in and talk to them. Uh, so I did. I went down to Donnybrook Garda Station and talked to a guard there. Can you remember, and I, I do appreciate we're going back a long time now, but do you remember the line of, of questioning? And, and again, you know, you were giving a witness statement as a mm-hmm. friend of, of Charles's. But can you remember, you know, how did they approach this interview? Did they have a questionnaire? Was this a very informal conversation between you and the Gardaí? Can you remember? Um, it, it was relatively informal. It was perfectly polite. Um, the general line of questioning i mean i i think there was who might you suspect kind of thing or do you know anybody who might have had a, had a grudge and all of that uh which the answer to which was no i don't were you familiar with people accusing gardy of harassing them people were accusing gardy of only interviewing them because of the fact that they were gay was that something that you were familiar with that was going on in the months after charles's murder uh, yes, very familiar with that, actually. Um, and there would have been a number of people we knew that 
didn't have a pleasant experience. Um, I even know of a neighbor's son who had injured himself playing football or something. And rather than being a bloody shirt home, he went to a laundry and to get it washed. They in turn got onto the guards who in turn arrived at his house. Now he didn't know Charles Self or anything. Had absolutely nothing to do with any anybody in, uh, anywhere close to him. Um, but that happened. I know people who in in the middle of questioning said they didn't want to answer any more questions and and were going to leave uh, and were literally pushed back into their seat and told they were not going anywhere. Um, I was fingerprinted. Were you really? Yeah. And did they tell with, you why they were taking your fingerprints? With a view to eliminating them from, from the muse because I had said I had been there. Yeah. And were were you in any way concerned as to what they would do with those fingerprints afterwards? And the reason I ask you that is because there were concerns in the gay community that people who had been eliminated from the criminal investigation into Charles Self's murder, that their prints and their statements were still being kept on file. Mm-hmm. Was that something that concerned you in the aftermath? Uh, I suppose it was of some concern. I, I had been assured by the detective that the fingerprints would be destroyed. In the immediate aftermath of Charles's murder, a number of gay organisations called for their members to cooperate with the guards' investigation. A special phone line was even set up for those reluctant to go to the guards with information. But when that line got clogged up with complaints of guard the harassment, the gay community became convinced that the guards were using the investigation as a cover to compile a file on gay men, many of whom were still in the closet. In response, the Gay Defence Committee was born. Its sole aim was to defend gay men and women from police attacks. Hey Ash. Morning, how's it going? All good, yeah, how are you? Good, good. I think I'm outside. Okay, great, I'll come out. Thanks, I'll see you in a minute. Bye. Bye. We're on the road again. We're going to meet Cahal Kerrigan, another well-known gay activist. Hi. Morning. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good. As soon as he came out in the mid-1970s, at 19 years of age, he took up the fight for gay rights. And he's been fighting for them ever since. His approach to gay liberation is quite radical. And while he didn't know Charles and didn't move in the same social circles as him, he, like so many others in the wider gay community, became very concerned about how the investigation was shaping up. The child self-murder provided them with an excuse. They pulled in 1,500. And some people say, and we claimed it at the time, as the Gay Defence Committee, as was called, that protested, etc. We claimed it as victory. But I think they stopped, not because of our protests, but because the gay scene was so small at the time that they had spoken to the core of the gay men in Dublin. They now had a map of who was who and who was connected to whom. So what you're saying is that, in your opinion, there was an ulterior motive behind the questioning of 1,500 gay men on the pretense that this was in relation to Charles Self's murder. This was essentially to build a gay dossier of sorts. Absolutely. That's what I'm saying. And in fact, I'd say part of the proof is the fact that questioning of all these, many of these, most of these gay men was not about Charles Self. 
Like they would begin by saying, did you know Charles Self? And people would say, no. Say, oh, but who did you know? Did you know his friends? No. Well, who do you know? Tell us who else is gay. Who have you slept with? Who's the, and they, and they, they got intimidatory when they needed to. Now, in my interrogation, they used things which I, I, I won't be able to repeat on air here, but they used foul, sneering remarks about my being gay and Martin and what we did in bed and who did what, etc. You can imagine. Do you think that Charles Self's murder was properly investigated? No. It's my belief that they never... And it's a terrible allegation to make. Looking back now, and in the thing, people are working in a society which is homophobic. So you'll say, these policemen, etc., the uniformed and the detective units, they obviously were working in a very homophobic environment, homophobic society, and they were, they were in a super homophobic area of the police. So I'm not trying to target them individually and say... Na 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 na, bad bad cop. But they, as police force themselves, they were not professional. The Guardi at that time were not professional. They made lots of mistakes, and I believe they took a prejudiced view that this was some kind of lunatic, gay murder, mad murder. They'd seen it in films from Hollywood. Well, they, I believe, they never really investigated it properly. Uh, I think they never looked at it fully. Has any follow-up been done if there was any DNA, for instance, and DNA files now, which uh, is solving some crimes? Uh, I also think that they, that that basically, I'm not sure, but I think there may also have been a slightly xenophobic thing. As I mentioned, Charles was English. So here was this English queer working in RTE, you know, fancy pants. He gets murdered in a terrible... Well, that's what you can expect. That's what you see in movies and television. You know, that's what happened to gay men like him. Cahill mentioned protests, and there were protests. A public meeting to highlight what was going on was held in Trinity in March 1982. One of the lead investigators, Superintendent Hubert Reynolds, responded by insisting the case was being properly investigated. He was quoted in the Irish Times the following day as saying... Our investigation is not geared to harassment, and if some people are hurt in relation to our inquiries, then I'm sorry, but we must go on. Pickets took place outside Pier Street Garda Station. Peaceful pickets. And after a while, things did settle down. By the summer of 1982, the investigation had all but wound down, and then something grotesque, unbelievable, bizarre and unprecedented happened. Nurse Gargan had left St James's Hospital for Castle Knock, where she lives, and stopped just off the park's main road to enjoy the sun. Then a gardener at the nearby US Embassy saw a man forcing her into the back of her silver Renault 5 and beating her with a heavy hammer. Today, Superintendent Jim Brogan appealed for public help in finding her assailants. Well, we have a good uh, description uh, of uh, the culprit and uh, People in the, must have seen him in the vicinity here in the Phoenix Park, and we would ask them to come forward. Well, are you afraid that this man uh, might strike again? That possibility exists. Bridie Gargan's killer did strike again. On the 25th of June, 1982, just three days after bludgeoning the young nurse with a hammer, he shot a farmer in the face with his own shotgun in County Offaly. The double murderer was arrested a few weeks later at the home of the then Attorney General, Patrick Connolly. His name? Malcolm MacArthur. And his face would soon be plastered everywhere. Outside the court there were scuffles as MacArthur was led away. He was hit on the back of the head with a handbag and others tried to punch him as he was escorted from the courthouse. 
The crowd jeered and shouted abuse as he was bundled into a waiting car to be taken back to Mountjoy Prison. When I saw Malcolm McCarthy's photograph in the paper, I, I remember being shocked because I had a striking similarity to the drawing that I'd seen. I'd never met him or knew of him or anything about him. And uh, I asked some friends of mine, do they know of him? And they, they said, yeah, he used to drink in the Bailey and Bartley Duns. With his thick, wavy hair and cultured accent, Manny wondered if Malcolm MacArthur was the man who walked into Bertie's room on the night of Charles's murder. According to Bill, he looked like the man in the sketch. I asked Tony Walsh if he ever saw him on the scene. I remember seeing um, Malcolm MacArthur in the upstairs part of the Bailey, which was quite a gay-friendly spot. I mentioned earlier on there was like... it was a really hot spot to all the aspiring middle-class gays. And Malcolm McCarthy stood out because he was quite a dandy. He was one of the few men I remember who actually wore fairly extravagant bow ties and his tousled hair. He wasn't difficult to actually miss. Malcolm had a dapper dress sense and was known to wear stylish bow ties and tweed jackets. Could he have been the man in the laneway, as seen by Mrs Liddell? Well, Superintendent Reynolds didn't seem to think so because just days after MacArthur's sensational arrest, he dismissed speculation that there was any connection. I asked Alan Bailey if the so-called gentleman killer was ever treated as a suspect in relation to what happened to Charles. He certainly was interviewed at the time as a part of the gay community. Okay, and And he he was interviewed specifically in relation to what happened to Charles? Oh, no, no, he wasn't interviewed as, do you know anything? Ah, I understand, okay. And from memory, did you see his statement? No, I didn't see his statement from... But again, it's the notoriety that kind of visited Malcolm MacArthur after eighteen as much as anything. So Malcolm MacArthur was never considered a suspect in Charles's murder investigation. The drawing board in the incident room at Dunleary Garda station was starting to look bare. And with detectives reassigned to the Gubu murders, they weren't going back to it anytime soon. Also, 1982 was about to get even busier for the murder squad. Charles was the first gay man murdered that year but he wasn't the last. On the 8th of September, 1982, John Roach was murdered in a hotel in Cork. Cahill Kerrigan knew him. Oh, he was well known. He he cruised the scene, as we say. He was not big in coming into the club, to the disco. He he was a big cruiser. He was well known, and I met him. I I walked around with people who were doing cruising as well, and they were walking around the streets, and run into John, and we'd have a chat, and he'd go off, and he'd talk about his success or his lack of success. And he was brutally murdered. But that, they had that solved. The Gardaí, talk about, you know, I said they, they could be unprofessional. In that, they were able to solve that within two weeks and the guy went to prison. John Roach's killer did go to prison, but not for murder. He successfully raised the gay panic defence, claiming he stabbed him to death during a state of temporary insanity because John was apparently trying to make him a gay. Seriously, that was an actual defence. Back then, you could claim you just lost it because of an unwanted same-sex sexual advance. The jury acquitted him of murder. He got five years for manslaughter. The very next night, on the 9th of September, 1982, another gay man was murdered. His name was Declan Flynn. 
Declan Flynn was set upon by five men, including a 15-year-old youth. He was savagely beaten, unconscious, and left mortally wounded. He inhaled blood from his mouth and nose and died from asphyxia. Remember Eddie Cash's story from the last episode? Eddie used to stand outside Fairview Park, warning people who went cruising there to be wary of rollers. He felt his complaints to the local guard the station weren't taken seriously. Well, the summer before Declan's murder, poor Eddie was viciously attacked in the park by a so-called queer-bashing gang. They beat him with clubs and sticks. He spent a full week in hospital. He needed 39 stitches to close his wounds. And on the day he was discharged, he asked the guards to call to his home so that he could make a statement. They never did. Declan was also set upon by a group of queer bashers. Despite being arrested and entering guilty pleas, his five killers were allowed to walk free. Mr Justice Gannon in court noted the jury's horror and anxiety at the nature of the crime. This crime, he said, is one which would merit severe punishment. He pointed out to the five accused that each was liable to be sentenced to life imprisonment. And the reason for this was that Declan Flynn's death was caused by violence, the concentrated violence of you all. Criminals you are, the judge said, but there is a factor that when a group is involved, it is much more difficult to hold back. Collective violence is much more serious than an individual acting on his own. The judge said that he had to demonstrate the abhorrence of immunity by imposing sentences, but it will not be necessary that these sentences be imposed immediately. One thing, he said, which has come to my mind is that there appears to be no element of correction required. All of you come from good homes and have experienced care and affection. The words of Mr. Justice Gannon. In the next and final episode of Inside the Crime, we're going to turn our attention to one of the most intriguing pieces of this puzzle. Bertie. It always surprised me to be told that Charles died at the end of the stairs, that Bertie didn't hear him, you know. I found that surprising. We'll take a closer look at Bertie's relationship with Charles and we'll comb through the results of a cold case review into the murder. The findings would throw everything on its head. When we revisited, we had the benefit of all these years with the forensic advances. We also had a crime scene photographs at the time. There are things very important. So what did that suggest to you, Alan, looking back on it? Well, one of the scenarios you must look at, it was a staged crime scene. And we'll come full circle and remember the reason we set out on this journey in the first place. Charles. Charles deserves to be remembered. Subscribe to Inside the Crime on the News Talk app, powered by Go Loud or wherever you get your podcasts. And for more exclusive content, visit newstalk.com forward slash deeper inside the crime. We are really confident that someone out there knows something or saw something that could help advance Charles's murder investigation. If you are that person, please contact the Guard the Confidential line on 1800 treble six treble one. You can also email us at inside the crime at newstalk.com. It's never too late. Inside the Crime was hosted by me, Frank Graney, produced by Ashley Moore, with sound mixing by Lachlan Hart. Archive audio in this episode was from RTE.